The, Lo the Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Where the dawn of the east meets the twilight of the west, and the cool of the north touches the calm of the south, and the transcendent power of God touches earth in the humility of Christ, here and now, where the head of the Charles reach, reaches out to the heart of the country, we gather to worship together. The liturgy, homily, and music are offered in the praise of God for our gathered congregation here at 735 Commonwealth Avenue, for our radio congregation across New England at WBUR 90.9 FM, and for our internet listenership around the globe at WBUR.org. We invite your prayerful or material support, your emailed or written responses, your self-selection in forms of ministry, and as the Spirit moves, come Sunday, your presence with us here. This is the day that the Lord has made. We shall rejoice and be glad in it. As we are able, may we stand in the praise of God.
O God, whose blessed Son came into the world, that he might destroy the works of evil and make us children of God and heirs of eternal life, grant that having this hope, we may purify ourselves as he is pure, that when he comes again with power and great glory, we may be made like him in his eternal and glorious kingdom, where he lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, please be seated. It is forgiveness and its possibility that draws us, empowers us in a time of confession. It is peace and its possibility that draws us to a time of the divestiture of anxiety. For where shall we go with our anxiety except to the peace of God? And where shall we go for our confession except to the pardon of God? As the choir sings for us our Kyrie eleison, may we offer these our personal and collective prayers of confession. Let us pray. People of God, hear the good news. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and, clen sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from the book of Ruth, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, and chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, I need to seek some security for you. So that, I may, so that it may be well for you. Now here is our kinsman Boaz, with whose young women you have been working. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now wash and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. She said to her, All that you tell me, I will do. So Boaz took Ruth and became his wife. When they came together, 
the Lord made her conceive, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without next of kin, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom and became his nurse. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in saying verses from Psalm 42 with the Antiphon. For you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and behold the face of God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me continually, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I went with the throng and led them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you, 
from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep, the thunder of your cataracts. All your waves and your billows have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I walk about mournfully? Because the enemy oppresses me. As with a deadly wound in my body, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me continually, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God. stand together as we are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri, the reading of the gospel, and the singing of our hymn. of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Mark, chapter 12, verses 38 through 44. Glory Glory to you, O Lord. As he taught, he said, Beware of the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces, and to have the best seats in the synagogue and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses, and for the sake of appearance, say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are about worth a penny. Then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury, for all of them have contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, 
has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. When you work up high, you need to put up a scaffold to stand on. Now, steeplejacks don't use a scaffold. They use ropes and pulleys. <clears throat> and I learned from one of them a most important interpretation of the dominical saying with which the Gospel of Matthew does end. You will remember it. Jesus says, Lo, I am with you. Low I am with you, he said, not high. High, you're on your own. Low, I am with you. <laughs> Our first five churches were small steeple churches with small steeples. And in the fifth, 
The, the fifth was squat enough, and I mean by that the steeple, not the jack, or the steeple jack to ascend with a ladder. Steeple jacks make a good penny hour by hour, but they earn every dime. In our sixth church, which was a tall steeple church, and the seventh was as well, we tried to get by with the steeple jack, but we had a piece of the steeple copper, 200 pounds, fall down on a university avenue. No one was hurt, but the sermons that fall contained references to uh, acts of nature and acts of God and exposure and liability and the like. And so the trustees employed, for significant expense, the construction of a scaffold, plank by plank. Interior care of buildings is important, crucial too, as we say of the human body following age 40. After 40, it's maintenance, maintenance, maintenance. Well, with regard to sanctuaries, particularly in the Northeast, it's maintenance as well. And you can try and get by inside with a rickety stepladder and a trusting trustee with a bag of bulbs or a paint can, but I refer you to the adage used some moments ago about low and high. Scaffolding is far better, and up the planks go. So too with preaching, bringing us to the preaching moment, the higher you go, the more important the scaffolding becomes. Now there are some spaces in scripture that perhaps would yield to a steeplejack or to a ladder and a trusting trustee. One thinks, for instance, of the letters of Paul. We know what Paul thought. But most of the scripture, Hebrew scripture and the New Testament, all the gospels, including Mark and especially the fourth gospel, John and the letters beyond Paul, and especially the apocalyptic writings, do benefit with a little bit of scaffolding. So help me this morning for a few minutes, if you will, to lay down the planks of Mark, going as we are to Mark chapter 12, that great high point. Now, Mark was written 70 years after the, the death and resurrection of Christ. It was written perhaps in Rome or perhaps in Syria. We know the author's name, but not his identity. We know he cared for his community. The gospel is formed, formed in the life of a community. So he mentions in chapter 15, verse 2, Alexander and Rufus. The gospel responds to and encourages hearers in a particular setting. It is, therefore, not an evangelistic tract. It is, therefore, not a diary. It is, therefore, emphatically so, not a history. So you will want to know something at this scaffold point about Mark's community. Who were they? They were Gentiles, not Jews. Hence Mark's writing in Koine Greek and his many verses of chapter 7. They were facing or undergoing persecution of some sort, future or present. Mark is writing a different kind of tome. He could have written a history, an essay, an epistle, a poem, a play. All were to hand, but he did not. He wrote something that had never been written before, a gospel. The word gospel is kind of like the word ghost. It's an old English word that means good 
the news. We might remember that come Sunday. It is, after all, good news that we hear and preach. Mark is not great literature. It's not Plato, not Cicero, not Homer. It's something far more visceral and far more meaningful for us. That is, Mark is the record of the preaching of the gospel. And if you miss that, you miss the gospel capital G and the gospel small g. Mark is the recorded entry, sermon by sermon, moment by moment, of the announcement of good news in a community that hears and heeds. It is the preaching of the gospel. The gospel enters life by speaking and hearing, enters, invades, incurs, feasts, celebrates. It is the hearing of the gospel that makes life meaningful. It is the hearing of the gospel that opens the experience of love in life. It is the hearing of the, of the gospel that allows an experience of really being alive. Mark is the preaching of the gospel. Now, so far, we have most of the scaffold up. You've done very, very well. We lack one plank, and we'll get to it in a moment. We can't, we're, we're not free, by the way, to preach as if the last 250 years did not happen. We don't have that option. The good news for the Christian minister is that what we know about the history of these documents opens, illumines, sets afire the imagination and the preaching tongue of the church far more than an earlier age ever could have done. Oh, you can, you can preach in a synchronic way, that is, just lifting the pages and speaking. There's a great deal of preaching that happens of that sort across the country, but it's not advised. It would be like taking your shingles and nails and going outside and heaving them toward the steeple and heaving them toward the roof and hoping that they might fall and be clasped by the mercy of God in place. It's a very primitive procedure, but you can try it. It's not advised. Or it would be like painting the interior of a church. Maintenance, maintenance, by opening the can of paint and stirring the paint and then heaving headlong the gallon of paint toward the wall and hoping that it landed right and not on. It's a very primitive procedure. You can try it, but it's not advised. Now, what we have said so far encapsulates the scaffolding of Mark, with the exception of the final plank. And that is a tale of two Marks, and the jury is out. You be the judge. Mark, critic. Mark, coach. Mark, prophet. Mark, moderate. Is Mark that is a moderate critic? Or is Mark, at the highest level, that top plank, a critical moderate? Now, let me describe the first option and then the carpenter of this plank. In this minority way of seeing things, Mark fights internally with opponents in his church over this. His opponents, says he on this view, have forgotten the meaning of baptism, including its potential for struggle and possibility of suffering. And so Mark says to his opponents, no. And to prove his point, he writes a gospel. 
beginning with a passion narrative, which is a document he has to hand. He says no. He says no by depicting the disciples as diabolical dunces. He says no by picturing Peter at uh, Caesarea Philippi with the wrong answers to the wrong questions. He says no by limiting the power of miracles as the gospel develops. He says no by bringing a critical edge to the voice of the Markan Jesus in the preaching of the Markan community. I'm happy to report to you that the author, the carpenter of this plank, is a good friend of mine. He was our predecessor in our Rochester pulpit. His 17 years there preceded our 11 years, and his name, he's a Methodist minister and did his doctoral work at Claremont, his name is Ted Whedon, and said he wrote he in his great book, Mark Traditions in Conflict, in Mark, Jesus represents Mark, the disciples represent Mark's opponents, and the disciples are reprobates, period, case closed. Mark critic, a tale of two Marks. There is a more moderate, a majoritarian point of view, and I give you that as well. This is written up most recently and most voluminously in the two-volume commentary on Mark by Joel Marcus. Imagine my surprise reading through this two-volume set this summer in preparation for the fall to discover that Joel Marcus had been teaching at Boston University when the first volume was published. No one tells me anything. Here he is, right? <laughs> He's now at Duke. On this view, Mark is not a critic. Mark is a coach. Mark is not a prophet. Mark is a moderate, like the rabbis around him, teaching, guiding, helping. So the miracles are not displaced. Peter is not brought so low. The, dis the disciples are mistaken, but not malevolent. It's a much happier view of the gospel, I must tell you. One we like. We don't like our family stories, our family trees, to be cluttered with crooked roots and to have rotten apples and to be infected with Dutch elm disease. We like our family trees to be like a palm tree, pleasant and easy moderate and coaching. And here is where my feet come down on this last plank. I wish Marcus the coach were right. My heart yearns that his view be true, true and truer, but my head and judgment tell me otherwise. Whedon's view, the critical view, it's taken 30 years for it to reach the surface and it's still the minority, is the truer which brings us straightway to Mark chapter 12. Did you hear it? Yes, it's full of venom, critique. Yes, it's full of hurt, critique. Yes, it's full of outrage, says Jesus. You can almost picture the Markan preacher remembering Jesus sitting in front of the temple, seething, at robes and seats and feasts and position and shouting, they will have the greater condemnation. You don't have much trouble hearing the critic there. It's in the second piece. Ah, the dear picaresque portrait of the widow and her mites. Where would we be without her? I can tell you personally, Without this dear widow, 31 stewardship sermons over the past three decades would never have been preached. She is just so wonderful to hear. Here she is, 
She's an example, isn't she, of disciplined generosity, isn't she, of practiced tithing, isn't she? Of course, tithing is the beginning of Christian faith. I agree with that. I say it. Isn't that what Jesus means? They, out of their abundance, have given a little, but she, out of her poverty, has given everything she had, all she had to live on. That's one way to say it. Here's the other. She she has given all that she had out of her poverty. She's given up everything she had to live on her whole life for shame. Mark, moderate. Mark, critic. Mark, guide. Mark, coach you. Be the judge. But I tell you on this last plank, we're not looking for representation. We're looking for strength. We're not looking for beauty. We're looking for truth. And Mark the Critic has it. So you've helped to put up the scaffolding for today's sermon, interior and exterior, to hear and see a little bit of Mark's portrait of Christ. Which brings us, and finally, to three suggestions whereby we come down from the scaffolding and apply the sermon to our life together. A recognition, perhaps, of awareness, a recognition of assessment, and a recognition of allegiance. This has to do with you at your own most self. It has to do with you in your heart of hearts. It has to do with your religious perspective. Are you aware of your religious perspective. It matters. It matters a great deal. We're far more comfortable responding to questions about our political or economic or cultural perspective, political, liberal, or conservative, economic, egalitarian, or libertarian, cultural, bourgeois, or bohemian, but your religious perspective. That is what you take with you at twilight, at dusk, at the horizon that includes everything else. Have you an awareness of your religious perspective? Well, it's Sunday morning and you're in church or you're listening on the radio up on the North Shore, enjoying a breakfast in the newspaper and a cup of coffee. Here we are with you in spirit, if not in the flesh. We'll assume that there's an awareness or you wouldn't be here or tuned in. Then let me ask you to assess your awareness, your awareness. This is your question. How's it working for you? How are things in the scaffolding at the highest level? We may dredge up Benjamin Franklin quickly to give two points of assessment for this week. You know his saying about death and taxes. Well, how is your religious perspective working when it comes to those two? That is, with regard to the approach the rhythms of approach, the rituals of approach to that last horizon, to that ultimate moment, to that mortal sense for yourself and especially for others. Tom Long, our colleague from Emory, had a sermon in the op-ed page last Sunday in, we, in which he asked this nation to look at the ways we're handling or not so graciously handling the close of life 
and the end of life. And quoting Gladstone, he said, a nation or a people that well treats and well respects the bodies of the deceased may just well treat and well respect the lives of the living. A country that well treats those at the twilight of life may just be a country that well treats those at the dawn of life. There does seem to be a relationship, does there not? Assess for yourself with regard, and then also with regard to taxes, we'll call this fiscal extremity. Some of us know it up close and personal. Just how well does this perspective guide you with regard to the moments you look forward to the position you desire, the moments you look up to that development of frugal and disciplined generosity, the moments you look down toward the portent of death, or maybe most especially, the moments of honesty when with the Mark and Jesus outside the temple, you look inside at that very human threat of greed. How is your perspective doing? Come Sunday, we assess for a moment. It may be in the reading and preaching of the gospel today that more than awareness and more than assessment are in view for you. It's a very personal, there's nothing more personal than a moment of faith, nothing. It may be that this is a moment of change and allegiance. For Mark 12, for all of its historic exemplary teaching, is not about stewardship at depth. It is about a call to change. Where is your allegiance? You know, it's an old line. It's not original with me, but it is as true as the day is long. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Whose are you? A dear friend and partner in our ministry wrote in some weeks ago to say that what we need to be teaching and preaching here includes a recognition that it's not all that smart for all of us to go our own individual ways and just maximize our self-interest. What's really smart for the future is a recognition as human beings that yes, we are responsible, but we are limited. And so we need that community of faith to guide us as we work together, as we pray together, as we study together, as we learn together, as we worship together. Where is your allegiance? A long time ago, a preacher and Greek scholar said this, if thine heart be as mine heart, give me thine hand. Can you hear the trust offered, the trust known, the trust expected in that? If thine heart be as mine heart, give me thine hand. Can you hear the confidence in that? Can you hear the openness in that? Can you hear the future in that? If thine heart be as mine heart, give me thine hand. Can you hear the freedom in that? Can you hear the grace in that? It begs to be 
heard. And upon its hearing depends your health, safety, healing, salvation. Amen. Friends, we now take time to offer our prayers to God. You may sit, stand, kneel, or come to the altar rail as according to your tradition. And now please join me in singing, Lead Me, Lord. Gracious and loving God, we come to you today with humble hearts to offer our prayers for the world, the church, the city of Boston, and those we come in contact with each and every day. We couldn't possibly express all of our concerns in one breath, and therefore we take comfort in knowing your spirit is in us and among us, searching out the deepest areas of our hearts, despite our lack of words even now as we pray together. In a world that's plagued with violence and oppression, we pray for peace. In a country where economic distress has reached our doorsteps, we pray for comfort. In a society brimming with sexism, racism, and homophobia, we pray for love. And in our individual lives, where we may find questions and concerns that seem to never end, we pray for hope. You are the God of hope, and without hope, we are lifeless. Therefore, we hope for a better world where peace does not have to come at the cost of lost lives. We pray for good health and survival that they may reach all people. We hope for equality and gentleness for everyone, especially those who seem different than us. And when we don't have the words to express our pain and doubt, we hope for others to walk beside us and encourage us. Let us always be reminded that you are the God of hope. We ask you, God, that you give us ears to hear one another clearly, eyes to see each other respectfully, mouths to speak to each other kindly, 
and hearts to love one another passionately, just as we know you love us and all people. And now we join together in saying the prayer that your son taught us, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. The peace of the Lord be always with you. And also with you. Hello, my name is Elizabeth Fomby. I'm the Director of Hospitality here at Marsh Chapel. The first thing I'd like to remind you of today is the red pads that are towards the center aisle at the end of the pew. If you would please take the time to fill those out so that us at Marsh Chapel can get to know your names better and so that also you can get to know the names of those folks who are seated beside you. Also, for those who are interested, we offer child care every Sunday starting at about 10 a.m. down in the basement of Marsh Chapel. We have something very special going on tomorrow, um, tomorrow evening at 7 p.m. in the nave of Marsh Chapel. We are commemorating the 20th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And our own Tim Westerhouse is going to be conducting a group called the Bridge Ensemble. And this is a group of about 40 singers and string players that will be helping us to commemorate the occasion. There will also be two BU professors from the Inter uh, International Relations Department who will be offering two um, different perspectives on the events. So again, that is tomorrow at 7 p.m. in the nave, and it is a free um, performance that's going to be one hour long. So we'd love to have you join us for that. Also, another reminder is that the second 
of the two Marsh Forums is going to be taking place today after the service. This is led by Andy Basevich, who's going to be um, giving us a little insight into his experience and also into his book, The Limits of Power. So that's taking place immediately after the service in the Thurman Room. And lastly, if you haven't heard about any of these events, like the Marsh Forum, and um, the Fall of the Wall, and all the things that have been going on at Marsh, you might check out the Fall Term Book, which is in the Narthex. We've got a few copies around. But also, you might check out the website. We've been updating that, so the website's address is www.bu.edu chapel. So I'd encourage you to check that out. Now walk in love as Christ loves us, an offering and sacrifice to God.
Gracious God, we don't know how much we have until we give all of our two copper coins, and we don't know how little we have until we open our lives to the abundance of your Spirit. Thank you for vision. Amen. Jesus Christ, the love of God, the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit, be and abide with each one of us now and always. Amen. 